came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. Radio waves. Astrophys brings the news. Arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Tuesday the 15th of June 2021. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Today we have a fantastic interview for you with an amazing operations supervisor whose daily job it is to talk with dozens of spacecraft in deep space. Richard Stevenson from NASA CSIRO. So right now we're going to zoom up to speak with Richard, who's in a remote high-tech valley nestled between hills about 45 minutes out of Canberra, Australia. Enjoy. Hello, Richard. Hello, Brendan. How are you going? Very well, thanks, Richard. And today I'm very pleased to be speaking again with Richard Stevenson. Richard is the Operations Supervisor at the CDSCC, the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex. Thanks for speaking with us, Richard. Thank you, Brendan. So those four years have gone awfully fast and we've managed (laughs) to cram so much into it, including a whole year of COVID. Indeed. When we first spoke to you four years ago, we heard about your move out to Australia to be employed by the combined might of NASA and the CSIRO. And for overseas listeners, the CSIRO is Australia's premier science agency, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. Now, NASA and the CSIRO jointly run the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex, the CDSCC, at Tidbinbilla near Canberra, where you're the operations supervisor. Now, in that earlier episode, you explain the technologies you use to have up to 100 spacecraft contacts each week and how you and your counterparts in Goldston in California and Madrid in Spain work in 24-7 shifts to maintain two-way communications with dozens of missions. Now, that includes all of those Mars missions, the Parker Solar Probe, the Chandra X-ray Telescope, the Distant Voyager Probes, and many others. And today I'm hoping that we can hear about NASA's deep space network's shift to follow the sun operations and how that's changed your average day 
and the recent retrofit of DSS 43 and some of the technologies you use to acquire and lock on to signals and get the data back to JPL and the scientists so they can analyze the data. Now, you're up for that, are you, Richard? I think so. So I think we're only governed by time, Brendan. <laughs> cool. Okay, let's go. So let's begin almost as far away as we can get. Now, I know Voyager 1 is a little further away, but you control the only dish on our planet that can send commands to Voyager 2. It's currently about 20 billion kilometres or 17 light hours away, yet you can send it commands and hear what it says when it talks back to you 35 hours later. Now, how do you do that? Like, how do you know where to point that huge dish? And can you tell us all about DSS 43's new X band transmitter, please? The new cone. The reason why uh, we're the only tracking station that can actually support Voyager 2 commanding is the fact that we're the largest pointable dish in the Southern Hemisphere with a transmitter. And also the band is unusual as well. It's the old-fashioned Sierra band where we're uplinking into to Voyager, uh, which is in the gig to gig range. So yeah, that helps. Obviously, so with 43 uh, commanding, so we can also receive on the 34 meters as well. One isn't enough, and so normally we'll, we'll array a few of them uh, to try and get that uh, link margin to, to bring in good telemetry. But the bit rate that's coming down from both the voyages is, is down to 160 bits per second at the moment, so we're not going to be breaking any speed limits here. But so actually, Voyager 1 still do, does do a dump, and I think it's about 1.8K uh, periodically, and essentially every antenna in Goldstone has to come to bear on it. Uh, and array to, to bring that telemetry down, and that's right on the margins now. As far as the upgrade so of last year, that was an interesting one. So essentially the beginning of the year, and Voyager 2 had a bit of a mishap uh, where it went into safe mode. Essentially the refit was supposed to start in January, and it was bumped a month to accommodate uh, working through that Voyager 2 issue with the project. So we actually started late. So some of the work had to be slipped over to, to future windows of opportunity over the next couple of years. But the, the big upgrade was actually the transmitter. Originally, the 400 kilowatt transmitter, which had been limited to 100 kilowatts anyway. Uh, so it was 1960s, and if you were being generous, 1970s era. Uh, so it was unreliable and impossible to get parts for. And obviously that was a big consideration for, for the Sierra Band upgrade. Uh, and also at the same time, we upgraded the X-ray band as well. So the X-ray band was originally a 20 kilowatt and we've, we've expanded that to 80. Strangely enough, that's brought up another couple of issues. And so we might go into that a bit later. So having essentially 80 kilowatts condensed into a small beam shooting through a captain window when there's bugs and stuff flying around isn't particularly interesting, especially when you're blowing holes in the captain window. But uh, yeah, it look, it's been, wow, sort of a year since the uh, DLM and 
So now here we are back. Uh, Voyager 2 is communicating and healthy. That's awesome, Richard. Now, a little bit more about that 70 metre DSS 43 dish. 43. You're transmitting from Tidbin Bill up that. How can you shout louder mm-hmm. heard by that tiny three-metre diameter high-gain antenna that's sitting on the back of Voyager 2, 20 billion kilometres away? Well, obviously, the bigger the dish, the, the narrower the beam, the more gain. So the, the antenna has a huge amount of gain. And when you start pumping 20 kilowatts out of it, so that's... That's a fair amount of power heading across our solar system. With the Voyager commanding supports, uh, we actually radiate 75 kilowatts, which is the only spacecraft that we actually have to radiate that power to. And it all comes down to the margins on the spacecraft. uh, So, you know, you're looking at the signal hitting the spacecraft. The receiver receives it at uh, probably a, a negative 135 dBm. So... I suppose as long as we have that margin to get the commands in, we're okay. So in a a few years, obviously, that might diminish again. But the fact that we have extended the the transmit range now up to a, you know, so 100 kilowatts uh, means that so we'll be able to extend that a little bit further again. And it all comes down to the pointing. This this beam has a 32,000th of a degree tolerance before you're outside of the beam. And... You know, it, it's tiny. Uh, and all, all the predicts are actually generated at JPL. JPL do essentially all the predict generation for, for all spacecraft, not just from Voyager 2. Yep. Okay. Now, I'll tell re- listeners right now that you can follow Richard on Twitter. He's at NASCOM1, and he does great posts about his work, and he also posts fabulous Thank footage. you. <laughs> from the drones that he sometimes flies around the tidbin bill of dishes as they lock onto targets. Now, back to your work as a controller, Richard, can you talk us through what you have to do at your workstation when the task schedule says NHPC and you have to send a command out to the New Horizons Pluto mission, which is just leaving our solar system and is well, relatively, only 7.5 billion kilometres away. <laughs> Tell us about that work. Well, well, New Horizons is one of the big interplanetaries. It's nice, big, predictable, stable. So when we look at the schedule and it comes in, the first thing that happens is, and a lot of this is now automated, So, and we'll probably go into this a little bit further, uh, you know, so the, the DSN in the last four years has to a great extent, gone to an automated sort of uh, scenario where certain spacecraft can be automated, certain ones can't. And we actually will touch on the, the three links per operator a little bit later. And it means now that our controllers, you know, you're talking about, sort of, uh, you know, what happens when you start a, a new Horizons Pluto mission, but that controller could also be at the same time be starting a Voyager 2 and uh, a Mars Odyssey support at the same time. So we, we do have tools to enable us to partially configure support, in some cases fully configure. So with this New Horizons one you just described, obviously it's in the schedule. It's being mated to resources. 
New Horizons, it's a funny one because it is the only spacecraft that transmits right-hand and left-hand circular polarization on X-ray band. And so we have two signals hitting the antenna with different polarizations, and we use an array system to combine those two signals at the antenna and double the signal. So that's great because it means that you can up the bit rate, you can double the bit rate coming from New Horizons. So you can still have a, a large bit rate coming all these billions of kilometers away. So the resources are there, uh, obviously the transmitter, and then we have to start configuring it. Every spacecraft is different. So they all have different bit rates. Transmitters have to be calibrated. We do actually still range on New Horizons, which means that we're sending range tones to it as well. So we can tell, and this is so hard, hard to understand. So when you're talking about billions of kilometers, we, we know where it is within a few meters. So uh, as far as a, a line of sight. So everything is configured. And then we start, we'll interface with the project. We'll talk to the project and see if they have any requirements for the support. And uh, so we'll acquire when we're supposed to acquire, provide an uplink uh, when they'd like. And the commands themselves are actually all generated from the project. So there's a, a tunnel VPN, essentially, so uh, from the project directly to our command system. So it's nice and secure. and They can't actually send commands to the wrong spacecraft, stuff like that. And, uh, and that's radiated. And the support can be from anything from a 10, 15 minutes, in, in some spacecraft's cases, to multiple hours. So... And at the end of it, so we'll say thank you very much to the project, move the antenna back to Stowe and get ready for the next support. Incredible. That is fantastic. So about 70 hours later, travelling at the speed of light, Horizon <laughs> gets your command, sends some data yep. back to you. The data arrives back at Earth another seven hours later. Who gets it? You or God? Madrid? <laughs> And what happens then? JPL sends the data to science teams for analysis. Is that the run? Uh, well, actually, it's, it's a little smarter than that. <laughs> uh, sp sp spacecraft actually have uh, something called virtual channels. So even though it's coming down on a, a single downlink, uh, so telemetry is labeled. And so that could be labeled as flight engineering data. And that can go to the project themselves. And obviously, with a spacecraft that big, there's multiple experiments on it. So you can actually label each piece of each experiment with a, a label. And instead of it going to project, it will go to the primary investigators, who could be somewhere completely different. They could be on the other side of the world. So JPL is the hub, obviously. So whether it comes, data comes down through Madrid, Goldstone, Canberra, all that telemetry goes into JPL, where the, the project subscribes to it. And some can be in real time, if they want to see it in real time. And for some spacecraft that you're dumping high rates of data, they may not want to see it in real time. They just want to walk into their office the following day and find this nice little packaged up piece of telemetry. Uh, so it, it depends on the project. New Horizons is always a, a, an ASON, uh, and that's essentially the the project representatives that we can talk to and so yeah and they'll in real time so if I look at the data coming in that's very neat oh thank you Richard now that's insane great 
great long distance <laughs> communication. Now, a little closer to home, we have all of those missions converging on Mars. There's nine of them, yes. I think. The traffic jam. <laughs> yeah. And can you tell us how mission communications are scheduled and how you acquire and lock on to around Mars, individual signals from a specific Mars orbiter, please, Richard. Yes, Mars is a busy planet at the moment. And all the spacecraft around Mars now serve, uh, are on X-ray band, which is uh, 8 gig. Now, there's only 50 megahertz of spectrum for all those spacecraft. So all spacecraft are allocated channels. Yeah. Uh, so in theory, so we shouldn't have any, any crossover or interference, but in, essentially in the real world, though, it does happen occasionally. With, with so many spacecraft around Mars, and so I suppose a few assets, I and mean, we've got 12, 13 antennas uh, within the DSN alone, only certain antenna have windows where they can actually see it. Obviously, if, if Canberra's looking at Mars, there'll be an overlap with possibly Goldstone or Madrid. But really, you have four, five, six assets that you can bring to bear. That's where the multiple aperture configurations start. So we can have one antenna pointing into the middle of Mars, and the beam width is wide enough to incorporate not only the planet, but a huge swathe of space, up, space on either side. Yeah. And that means that within that spectrum coming down, the 50 megahertz, uh, so we have all our spacecraft sitting in it. Uh, some will be occultating. So you'll have spacecraft coming into that spectrum and then disappearing as they go behind Mars. Some of them do science, so they'll be orientated, even though they're within view, they might be uh, orientated so that they're looking at Mars, so we don't have to worry about those. But then it's just a case of allocating a receiver to a chunk of spectrum. Yeah. So uh, we, we can track four spacecraft around Mars using a single antenna. You know, so you have two antennas, and that's suddenly we can incorporate all Mars spacecraft. Now, since we talked, uh, Mars, I suppose, has, has opened up internationally as well. And it was always a NASA and ESA uh, environment. And, and now we've had the, the Arab Emirates uh, and obviously the Chinese. And uh, the Chinese we don't support, but we certainly support the Emirates mission as well. But yet, I mean, that is a consideration long term as well, you know, with such limited bandwidth. And we have so many spacecraft now wanting to send back huge amounts of data and the prospect of uh, human spaceflight as well to Mars. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to bump out of the X-ray band, go into K band. So where there's, there's far more spectrum and possibly optical as well. But how we do that and so the timeline, so I'm not quite sure. Fantastic. Now, we might talk a bit more about optical a bit later, but now while we're on Mars, a few weeks ago, we watched... If only. <laughs> we watched that helicopter and, yep. that was, and that was fantastic. And thanks to DSN operations and a few scientists and engineers, we got to watch that historic flight. Now... Perseverance Rover took a video of the Ingenuity helicopter and a little bit later, we all watched that historic flight. Now, I think you've hinted already or you painted a picture of how that's done, but could you tell us 
how that video data made its way from the surface of Mars to our computer screens from <laughs> a DSN controller's point of view, please. Well, it's, it's a mixture. of Obviously, so the way we talk to the rovers, and this is uh, stands for all ro rovers, we can actually command direct, and all the rovers have the capability of sending back telemetry back to us, and we call that direct to Earth. So we, we have a direct connection with that rover. So we have to be within view. So obviously we can't communicate with it if it's rolling behind Mars. That's one form of communication. The other one is through a UHF repeater system. All the, the orbiters, at least all the ESA and NASA orbiters uh, are equipped with uh, an Electra UHF system. And that's just a two-way radio essentially. So that's close range and it's fully automated. So as a spacecraft comes over the horizon, so the little rover will respond and they'll, they'll negotiate a handshaking and uh, the rover will upload its data uh, into the, the orbiter and that data can be dumped back to Earth. So with, with the helicopter, it's a little bit more convoluted again where the helicopter talks to the rover using its own UHF link. Yep. And then the Electra talks to the orbiting spacecraft uh, using UHF. And then so we have X-ray band coming back from the spacecraft back to Earth and then back to JPL. So by the time we actually do see the pictures, it's certainly uh, been through a number of hands. Fantastic. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You had to ask. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. Now, in the intro, we mentioned the DSN's move to follow the sun operations. Can you give us some insight into why that was done and how it's changed how the DSN operates as a network? And, yeah, tell us about follow the sun. Well, well follow the sun came around. Strangely enough, the last time we talked, we were, we were talking about going into it. So I think we last talked in the June of 2017. Yep. And uh, we, we hit Follow the Sun in January the following year. And I, I have my old shift supervisor from years ago. He was claiming credit for it. He was at a JPL workshop and he brought it up. He said, what about Follow the Sun as a, as a cost efficiency? And it was never taken up at that point. And uh, 10 years later, so if somebody came up with it again and thought, oh, that, that could actually work. Now, before I, I just talk about follow the sun, let's just say the system we had. And the system we had was essentially each station, whether it be Madrid, Canberra, and Goldstone, operated their own assets. So, so in Canberra, we'd only track DSS 43, 34, 35, so 36, I suppose. So, so we'd only have the four antennas that we track. And we, we would work shift. So you'd have a team of six or seven, seven people. And uh, so 24-7, we were all working 12-hour shifts. Uh, what Follow the Sun did was provide an operations environment during daylight hours. One complex controlled the other two. When it was first talked about, it was, ah, oh, think about the logistics. You know, it'd be very difficult to control antennas on different continents. And so, you know, it would get very confusing. 
but it's actually probably been one of the more advanced moves the DSNs had. It's actually worked incredibly well. Part of that is, I suppose, feeling as if we're all one network. Canberra is no longer isolated to our own assets. Now, I walk in and I'm controlling the antennas in Madrid and Goldstone. Uh, I'm also liaisoning as well with uh, both the operations teams as well. Obviously, when you go to follow the sun, you can't just have an ad hoc system of just handing over spacecraft because, you know, on the handover from one operations team to another, you can have eight or nine supports that have to go from one to the other operations team. So tools had to be created to make that formalized. So uh, you have one person relinquishing responsibility and another controller accepting it. And then so there had to be a continuity. So we have chat lines going on, uh, sort of saying if there's any issues and what we can do, what project requirements are. So we've actually managed to do it. So project don't care. You know, so they just have a difference of accent. So one minute they're talking to an Australian and the next minute they're talking to, to a Spaniard. So it's actually, as I said, happened. Uh, so or it's working really well. Uh, and it has actually brought the, the DSN family together. So it's been good. Yeah, that's beautiful. Now, I've had a heap of fun working out what questions to ask you. <laughs> and the Parker Solar Probe, now that's an awesome mission. It's flying so dangerously close to the sun. It's so scary to me. And I was imagining how difficult it would be to acquire a clean signal with all that radio noise beaming from <laughs> the sun itself. And Now, you describe the Parker Solar Probe as, this is such an interesting mission and from a DSN controller perspective, a reliable and predictable spacecraft that hasn't put a foot wrong. Can you tell us about your work (laughs) with the Parker Solar Probe, please, Richard? Well, Parker, it's it's funny because it's it's called Parker just shortly before launch, but within the DSN, we're still using SPP, Solar Polar Probe, which it was named a conception. So if you, if you actually look on DSN on, online, so which is uh, the real-time look at the, the DSN and what we're tracking, it'll, it'll still be shown as SPP. Now, SPP, for those who, who don't know, it's a spacecraft that gets awfully close to the sun. And so it has this huge heat shield as well to stop it from frying. And, and what it does is it gets close to the sun, obviously, so if, and the instrumentation's buzzing away. And after it's encountered, it will fly out as far as Venus. So it's got a really elliptical orbit. And during that orbit, there's different communications phases that it goes through. So as it's approaching the sun, as you said, so if, that the sun is a huge noise source. And so you can't expect either telemetry or commands to, to get to a spacecraft. So it goes into a beep mode. So it has just a, a tone that it sends out on the carrier, which is essentially a happy or a sad tone. Yep. So up to now, it's always been happy. So that's great. And then as it comes out of the influence of the sun on the other side, 
then it goes to lower rate telemetry. As it gets further away, it goes to a higher rate telemetry. And then so once we're in that cruise stage in between the sun and Venus, it actually configures for K-band, which is a, a different frequency band. And that's where it dumps everything it collected during that uh, solar encounter. So, you know, it's, it's doing it time and time again. And it's probably one of my favorites for a controller that is. I mean, you've got the, the science, which is just incredible to actually sit back and create that link to the spacecraft and the project. It's, it's so nice and easy. Fantastic. That brings up an issue that we can talk about now. Engineers and scientists are noted for the calm precision in their work, yet I saw a lot of emotions when I went up <laughs> to the CDS a couple of years ago, and a lot of people were there, and they teared up as we watched Cassini flatline on your screen. Now, it's not just gale force winds that get your heart pumping, does it, Richard? <laughs> well, there's, there's two. There's, uh, there's technical challenges, so, which, which are different. So quite recently, so we had a spacecraft go into safing, and straight away you put your, your troubleshooting hat on. And when you see something that you don't expect then your first response is, is it, and this is, a, is it ground-based or space-based? Is there something wrong with your equipment or is there something wrong with the spacecraft? So there's very little emotion there other than, I suppose, adrenaline. So, so you're, you're trying to figure out as quickly as you can, obviously, so project wants to know why they're not receiving telemetry. But then you have the projects where you know it's going to end, like Cassini. We, we all knew it was going to end. And, you know, it was a 20-odd-year mission. And we'd actually met the radio science people. They'd come over to Canberra as well. And obviously, you're talking to, to the project every support, so you get to know them. So the spacecraft itself has, I suppose, a, a pseudo-personality. You know, we were talking about nice, easy spacecraft, predictable spacecraft. Yep. Uh, so that, that gives it a like a pseudo personality because hey yeah it's a friendly spacecraft you know so it does exactly what we want so it doesn't throw us any curveballs but then so if you've got the fact that you have so many people involved with it as well so when Cassini went into to Saturn it was it was actually quite an emotional moment and I mean the spacecraft itself yes it's it's just hardware but linked to that hardware you, you know you have so many people and uh, so, yeah, you could actually sort of feel, uh, I suppose, the sadness sort of, of the moment. And it was, it was quite emotional. It was something very similar as well to Spitzer. When we actually shut down Spitzer, we didn't actually throw it into anything. We just uh, shut it down. Mm. And uh, it was the same, same thing. You know, I, I did the, the final Canberra eulogy to the, the mission saying, thank you very much. It's been a great little spacecraft. So yes, there's definitely emotional moments, but you also have the, the adrenaline buzz moments as well. So they're all, they're all mingled. Yeah, thanks, Richard. So true. Now, now, what's happening here is that we're getting hundreds of more CubeSats. Artemis alone carries a possible... 30. 13! Yeah. Not that we're counting. Yeah. How many? 13. 13. 
13 secondary payloads. There's actually, so with the, the Artemis spacecraft or the M1, they actually have a secondary payload collar, which can accommodate 13 6U CubeSats. And that has posed a challenge to a network that deals with two, possibly three new spacecraft a year to suddenly have this 13 new ones, including EM-1. So that's 14 uh, spacecraft launches at once. So the CubeSats are being a real challenge. And, you know, we might actually talk a little bit later about some of the ways that we're going to be dealing with CubeSats and tracking them. But currently within the DSN, a CubeSat, when it comes along, so we've, we've been testing, even though the launch isn't until late November, We've been testing these for EM1, certainly for a year. Uh, some of the, the newer CubeSats are probably five months now. And there's, there's no difference between how we test for test and, and, and that, when I say testing, that's integration testing and interface testing to the project. There's no difference between essentially a flagship spacecraft and, and a CubeSat, even though the, one can be 300 million and one can be $3 billion. Uh, and I think that's that's going to have to start changing uh, be, because there's so so many DSN resources being taken up on the uh, these interface tests. Every antenna has to be tested back to project. We have to feed them simulated data. Uh, they have to be able to command to it. And we actually have a JPL representative. We call them a, a NOPE and a NOAA. And they're the middleman. They're the, the person that uh, talks to the project and he's a, he's a JPL person. And he'll make sure that the project's interfaces are all correct. And obviously that uh, their expectations are met as well. And I talked to, uh, to the lead note last week and he said he, they're all twitching at the moment. You know, so there's, there's so much business. So, uh, so they're, they're on all the time. So, so yes, CubeSat's certainly thrown a curveball into the DSN. So how we deal with it long-term, I'm not quite sure about. So there is, there's a new system coming out called opportunistic tracking, so which is essentially a, a way of dealing with smaller spacecraft where the projects don't have these huge time constraints as far as telemetry delivery. And it means essentially they're piggybacking on the antenna pointing. So if the antenna is pointing at one spacecraft, but one of these little CubeSats is in the spectrum, then that spectrum is recorded at that point, but then sent back to JPL and processed post-pass. So they, you know, so the project may get their telemetry an hour, possibly two hours after the support itself. Uh, that's another huge change in the DSN, and this is all so this is all software-defined radio. You know, yeah. so, uh, so that's uh, more or less off-the-shelf stuff. Actually, so an interesting thing, when Voyager 2 was going through the helioports, the DSN was, was packed as far as resources. But Voyager 2 wanted to see that moment where it transitioned through the, the heliopause. So they needed uh, sort of fairly continuous tracking. And we asked Parks to join the supports and this is obviously Park CSIRO, yep. uh, the CSIRO antenna. And if anybody is familiar with software-defined radio in the amateur fields of 
there's this lovely piece of equipment called a hack RF. Essentially what they were doing is just recording the spectrum and putting it onto SD cards and uh, sending it across to JPL. And at JPL, they take these SD cards, get another little hack RF and feed it back into uh, spare receivers at the test facility at JPL. And even though it wasn't real time, so Voyager still had that continuity of data coming in. So I think so when that was so successful, people started thinking, well, why can't we do this within the beams of other spacecraft? So for instance, if we're looking at Mars and you have the big players around Mars and then we have the little CubeSats, what's to stop us from recording the same thing on HackRF or something similar and uh, doing the same thing, processing it post-pass? Uh, obviously, the equipment now is, has gone beyond the HackRF stage, and uh, JPL now is in the full design stage and feasibility studies. So that's going to be the next big one as well. And, and that will certainly help us accommodate the influx of, of, of CubeSats. And a very appropriate name. Uh, <laughs> opportunistic. Okay. Look, crystal ball time, Richard. I've heard that the next generation of space robots will talk to each other and us here on Earth using laser technologies. Now, what new technologies have been floated or even funded for the next round of upgrades at City SCC at DSN? Well, as far as SCAN is concerned, and SCAN is the essentially the overarching uh, organization that does all NASA communications, whether it's low Earth, uh, the TDRS network, and the DSN. SCAN is very much looking forward into optical. Yep. And currently at Goldstone, uh, they're doing the first RF optical hybrid. So the sods have been turned there. So uh, it, That'll be probably online in, a, in, a, in two years. They're already starting to do it with some of the spacecraft that are capable of doing. LRO is one, uh, which is a lunar mission. So uh, they have tested laser communications with it. But sadly, it's not all rosy with, with optical uh, because suddenly you have the constraints of weather and optical doesn't do very well with cloud. We all go home if we were all optical, if it was, it was cloudy or rainy. So there has to be an RF contingency as well. So, so what I think they're going to be doing is optical and RF. And, and obviously, we, we won't be doing it with spacecraft that are, you know, sort of three days round-trip light time or two days round-trip light time. Yeah. But we'll certainly be doing it with uh, relatively close Earth orbit stuff uh, and near deep space. So where in real time, the project can enable the data. So if they need to get rid of a huge amount of data, they can look for a window where the, 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 the skies are clear, essentially, and, and essentially just disgorge their data at that point. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's something else that will have to be managed. And it makes it very hard with very long round-trip light times because you can't say, okay, stop stop yep. flow of data, and it takes 12 hours to come back and stop. So it seems to be more suited for near deep space. Cool. Lasers in space. What's not to love? <laughs> Actually, another interesting one, while we're, 
while we're talking is shortly after our last talk, I, I was actually at JPL playing in the Mars pit. So, and I also got to visit Goldstone as well. And one of the, uh, the gentlemen I was, I was dealing with had a side project and you're talking about uh, space networks and lasers. And, and his task was lava tubes. Mars and the moon have lava tubes. And they were trying to figure out how to get telemetry out of a lava tube. And so he had this little animation which showed five little rovers. So you'd actually land close to a lava tube and obviously it would open up and you'd have the mother rover and the little kiddie rovers. And each one of the kiddie rovers would act as a relay. So as the mother rover started wandering into the lava tubes, the little kiddie rovers would keep regular pacing behind it. And they were the link out, the communications link out. And that way, so you'd have one of them sitting on the outside of the lava tube acting as, as the final relay up to the orbiter and then back to Earth. And that way we could actually penetrate holes. I actually found it quite fascinating at the time that they were actually thinking of that. So uh, this is all part of a, a networking sort of aspect that they're looking at doing on, on different planets. That's insane. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh... Science fiction today is science fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, the mic's all yours now, Richard, and this is where we give you the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, in technology, engineering. The mic's all yours, and you might even have some career advice for aspiring space engineers. <laughs> well, Sadly, I don't have any rants. So I'm actually fairly happy with the, the status quo. I mean, so year in, year out, the DSN, just like anything else. I mean, we also have uh, the ESA network as well. We, we actually didn't talk about ESA. Oh, yeah. ESA actually have uh, a deep space antenna over in New North here in Western Australia. Yeah. And uh, so CSIRO sort of also manages uh, the ESA assets in Australia as well now. So uh, CSIRO does the NASA and the ESA. So I was able to visit uh, New Norcia last year where everything is very different actually. So as far as how they operate, so instead of the controllers being locally, they're, they're all based in Darmstadt. But uh, I suppose they only have the one antenna. They've just had to go ahead now for a second antenna to be, be built. And uh, that's all due to essentially the loading on the networks. One thing we are finding is as we're throwing out spacecraft and lunar isn't too far away. That's, we're not really worried about that. If you do the lunar, uh, a lunar mission, and even if you look at human space flight, the optimum size antenna for, for human space flight is things about 18 meters. So for the DSN, 34 meters is overkill, yeah. even though we are going to be involved with that. So, I think we're missing a step. So we have the low Earth orbit sort of essentially stations. And then we have a bit of an air gap between that and the DSN. And I think so maybe it's time to start thinking about another sub-network just for lunar. 
I know there was a recent announcement by NASA that they're trying to get some commercial players uh, involved as well, just to take the load off. A prime example is Gunhilly, and if, if anybody's heard uh, of uh, Gunhilly in in Cornwall in the UK, it used to be an old Telstra antenna that used to communicate across the Atlantic. That's been repurposed now and had a, a lot of money put into it from ESA to, to bring it to a, a commercial deep space antenna. Now, and I think that's what we're going to be seeing now as well. The DSN and ESA have played a, probably a primary role in supporting deep space. And I can see far more commercial entities uh, joining the group now as the existing networks start to overload. Yeah, well, 18 metres is almost backyard stuff. It is, yeah. But it's as far as space is concerned, so if, uh, the moon is a, is a stone throw away. It's, uh, you know, sort of a, a second RTLT. Yeah. You know, all the things we can't do on Mars because of the RTLT, uh, so we can do on the moon. But the communications devices don't have to be that big. So the antennas don't have to be that big even to bring down the really high data rates. And so, yeah, so there's, a, there's certainly an opportunity within that 18-metre size for commercial entities to fill the gap. Yeah, fantastic. Exciting times. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future, Richard? We're almost out of time. What are you keeping yep. your eye on? Uh I think so. Human spaceflight is a huge one. The Lunar Gateway is another. We're starting to ramp up. Uh, with the change of administration in the US, it looks as if momentum is going to continue, which is excellent. And I suppose when I first started here, we were actually doing shuttle missions. It's now that a decommissioned 26 meter, which was strangely enough, uh, the Apollo antenna. So we used to bring down the shuttle communications and you know, occasionally we used to talk to the astronauts flying over. I think so, if, you know, here I am, 54. I think in my working career, so if I'd like to be able to talk to somebody on the moon. So, and I, I think that's probably doable. So if, if, if we do continue that, as I said, that momentum. So <laughs> as far as a career, that's what I'd like to see before I retire happy. Look, as far as career moves as well, there's so much opportunity with the, the introduction of the Australian Space Agency, which we haven't even touched on at all. Uh, so it's not the same as NASA, uh, and it doesn't have the funding of NASA, but uh, it's certainly acting as a facilitator for commercial entities in Australia, which is, which is very much a positive. And, so, and with that comes opportunities. And I think so of... You know, for those thinking about getting into space dynamics, system engineering, robotics, sort of any of those sort of fields, I think you'd be placing yourself in the right position to, to get into the space industry. Excellent. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Richard Stevenson, on behalf of our list. <laughs> it's been really fabulous speaking with you again. Awesome. Oh, I'm sorry if I talked too much. Uh, actually, sir, uh, I wasn't sure when you went and you asked me again whether it was because my first one was so interesting or 
my first one was so bad, you would give me a second chance to redeem myself. (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely the former. Well, thank you especially for your time, Richard. You've got a really busy schedule. I've had a look at it. Congratulations and thank you for talking with us. And thank you for talking with all of those space missions for NASA, JPL, ESA, CSIRO, all of those space organisations. And don't forget, listeners, you can follow Richard at NASCOM1 and at Canberra DSN on Twitter. And you can see all the missions set. Richard talks with and is tracking in real time by going to tinyurl.com forward slash cdscc rich. That's all one word, all lowercase. And thanks, Richard. That's great. Thank you, Brandon. So lovely to talk to you again. See you, mate. (laughs) I'll see you. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. And we'll see you in two weeks when Ian returns with his monthly Skywatch for observers and astrophotographers. Radio Wave!